following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Larger for Life, everybody's favorite podcast, not just on the Larger Catechism, but as Derek said last week, the, everyone's favorite podcast worldwide, bar none, no caveats, no qualifications. We're glad you're back and joining us today as we are continuing right in that Christological section of the Catechism. We're in some great territory uh, right now, brothers and sisters. We are talking about the Lord Jesus. We're talking about his mediation. We're talking about uh, what he accomplished for his people. And in particular today, uh, we're thinking about questions 41 and 42. Uh, the name of our Savior, the title of our Savior, why was our meteor called Jesus Christ? And so questions 41 and 42 help us unfold that uh, and un better understand that. Uh, we're here today. I'm Sean Morris. I'm here with Derek Bright, Nick Bullock, and Matt Adams. Uh, Stephen Spindenweber is not here with us this particular day. I can't remember if he was fired or if he was deported from the country, uh, if the FBI has a warrant out for him, something along those lines. But he was, I believe the term he used was uh, legally detained from being able to join us today. So we're just going to have to press on without him. So without further ado, let me read the couple of questions here for us because they're so related. We're going to take two of them together uh, in one episode uh, for y'all today. So let me read questions 41 and 42. Number 41, why was our mediator called Jesus? Answer, our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. 42, why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate both of his humiliation and exaltation. So lots of great, lots of great content, lots of great categories and thoughts for us to think through today. But let me begin by kicking it over to Matt. Matt, where do you want to go with this, brother? You want to start with 41? Do you have some thoughts for us there? Yeah, sure. I think that we would start, uh, need to start at 41 and talk about the name that is given to our Savior, Jesus. Um, you know, it's, it was real interesting because Johannes Voss and the commentary that we've been using to help us along in this podcast series, he mentions just a few things right off the bat as he uh, begins to dissect this question. And it reminded me that over uh, the Christmas holidays, my four-year-old little girl asked me, you know, so why did Jesus's mama and daddy give him the name Jesus? How did they come up with it? And I had to explain to her one of the things that Johannes Voss brings up very quickly that, you know, this wasn't a name that Mary uh, or Joseph came up with. This was a name that was given by God through the angel Gabriel uh, to, to Joseph. So the Lord, his father, true father, and our heavenly father gives him the name Jesus, which literally means Jehovah is salvation. Uh, that's the second point that, that Johannes Voss brings up right off the bat uh, while he discusses this question. 
know, one of the things that we I think would be very helpful for our listeners to to understand and to think through and think about or maybe even be reminded of is that this is the Greek form of a Hebrew name, uh, Yeshua, or what we would uh, say is Joshua. And of course, that is a, a, a prominent character in the Old Testament, uh, the leader of God's people, the nation of Israel, as they uh, now cross into the promised land after being led by Moses. Um, one of my favorite stories, the memorial stones there being Ebenezer's of God's faithfulness and salvation and and keeping his promises and, and giving them the, the land of inheritance. But Jehovah is salvation, uh, is the literal meaning of the name Jesus. And it, and it highlights for us what exactly the catechism says, that his name is Yeshua or Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so there's so many great truths, uh, theological truths that are that are told to us by just simply acknowledging that our Savior's name is Jesus. And the first thing I want to say, and then I'll let somebody jump in here, but the first thing, the first theological thing that it helps us understand is that salvation, being saved from our sins, is an absolutely divine, you know, providence of the Lord, that Jehovah, Yahweh, he is the one that is saving his people from their sins through the person and work of his son, our Savior, Jesus. And so acknowledging that our, our Savior's name is Jesus doesn't allow us, and the catechism's being very careful here and not allowing us to think that Jesus offers the possibility or the chance of salvation, but he actually accomplishes the salvation of his people. And so we can't affirm things like provenient grace, right? Uh, where we where we believe that we are uh, brought into this neutral standing with God, and then uh, Jesus Christ comes and he lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death, raises in victory, ascends on high, sits at the right hand of the Father, so that we have this opportunity now, or this choice, or this uh, offer, if you will, of salvation that could be yours or could not be yours. Uh, no, Jesus Christ actually comes to accomplish salvation for his people. That is all in the name, right? There's something about the name of Jesus that is of utmost importance when we think about uh, our mediator, our, our savior, Jesus Matt, the Christ. are you going to start singing that old gospel song for us? There's something about that name? I thought that's where you were going just there. There's just something about that name. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We used to sing that growing up in the Pentecostal church. Yeah. Uh, it was actually probably one of our favorites uh, yeah, growing man. up. So, yeah, it, you know, but there is something about the name, right, uh, of right. Jesus, that he accomplishes the salvation for his people. He saves us from our sins. Uh, that's exactly what the catechism question uh, is trying to help us understand. So, yeah, Derek, Nick, do y'all have something you want to add to question 41 here as we think about the name of our mediator being Jesus? 
You know, I think one of the things that we have to view um, all of this <clears throat> with specifically regarding his being called Jesus is the sovereign hand of God. Uh, th this all looks to God's appointment of his son to take on flesh, but also his work. Th th these things aren't accidental. Whenever he's given a name of such grand stature, there is this connection with the old um, promises of God given to the people in his covenants for his salvation, for the taking of their hearts and changing their hearts for the inscripturation of his law upon their hearts and consciences, and simply saying, all those things are going to happen with this man. Um, I mean, who, who could hold this title? Because it really is a title in a lot of ways, even as much as it is a name. A title about what the Lord has intended him to do. It's like a purpose statement. It's writ large on him, even from this, uh, the, the day of his birth. So that's square one. What's he about? What's this baby about as he grows, becomes a man? What's he going to be about? He's going to be about the work of God for the salvation of the people of God. Um, and isn't that a wonderful handshake? I mean, it really is. Uh, but, but I want to say that I think it says a lot about God's uh, appointment. It, it says a lot about the Father's will um, that's being carried out in the giving of Jesus as the, as the Son taken on flesh. Nick, I want to piggyback off of something you said because it reminded me of question 34 that we've handled a number of episodes ago at this point. But you mentioned uh, in your comment there that the name of Jesus being given to our Savior by the Father um, is absolutely reminding us of his uh, promises in the covenant of grace, right? And if you think about question 36 again, uh, in it says that the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecy, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances. And so, you know, wrestling with that comment from Voss about Jesus's name being Yeshua or, or Joshua, the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew name, you think about how not only does it tie us back to the promises of grace, Genesis 3.15, that one will come to crush the head of the serpent. Um, or David, uh, the covenant with David, there's one that is coming that's going to sit on the throne and reign eternally. There's promises, but there's also types, right, that, that, are, that are foreshadowing this coming Savior, Jesus. And Joshua was one of those. Um, Jesus Christ is the better Joshua. He's the, the better leader of God's people. He's the one that is leading us ultimately not into the promised land here on earth, but the land of promise in heaven for his people. And, and so promises and types are, are being utilized here as showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment to uh, the covenant of grace. This is the one that we've longed for. Um, this is the better promise, the, the better type. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just loved how you tied that into uh, the promises that, that we've talked about in the covenant of grace as well. And that's all wrapped up in this name, uh, Jesus. You know, and isn't it such a significant thing? My wife and I were talking just last night about the intertestamental period. You know, these several hundred years of the silence of God where the prophetic tongue has been uh, completely uh, stilled. And you've got the, you know, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, right? We, we have John 
And and what is he doing? He, he's preaching repentance. He's preaching the coming of the kingdom, um, the heart religion of the people of Israel. But then what do you have in the giving of this child? You have the mouth of God through the emissary of an angel saying, this is Jehovah will save. Um, it's a breaking of silence. It's, 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 it's like this wonderful annunciation that all of those things are now. These things are coming true, and they're coming to, coming true in Him. Uh, God has not forgotten His promises. He will deliver, and here's your Redeemer. And it's just so wonderful. Um, and, and maybe it's the case that we don't pay enough attention to that as Christians and as modern Christians. Nick, I think you. I actually think that you're right. We don't pay attention to it, or we have a, you know, a four year old understanding of it that there's. It's just a name. Um, but there's there's so many God wrought aspects in the giving of this name um, that we can can cling to the promises of our salvation. We can cling to the assurance, the hope of our glorification simply because our Redeemer's name is, in fact, Jesus. It's nothing that we need to pass over, is it? Um, there, there are a lot of benefits in just meditating upon the name of our Lord and that his name is Yeshua um, because Jehovah, Yahweh, has saved us from our sins. So, you know, as we kind of transition because the the next question question 42 uh has a much fuller commentary uh with the with the answer given there why is he called the christ uh and in a lot of ways uh and in a lot of places uh we have to remember that that definite definite article is there uh, mm-hmm. jesus the christ because this isn't a last name or a middle name uh, this is the title that is given to our Lord and Savior. And so I want to just think about the first little phrase, guys, uh, that is given to us in 42. And, and Derek, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to kick it to you because you have to speak on this episode. Um, we're going to force you to. Um, so, Derek, what does it mean when the catechism says, that he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure. And see, our, our listeners, measure. our listeners can't see it because this is an uh, a, an audio medium and not a visual medium. But Derek has actually just gotten up out of his chair and left the room. Utter refusal to engage Matt's question. <laughs> utter refusal to participate in the show at all. He's not even. He's there's an empty chair behind his desk right now, the screen where I'm looking. So uh, he's just he's just. I don't know if he's terrified of Matt or if this is an act of defiance, but he's just refusing to, to play along. I think I blew his mind when I said it was a title and not his last name. You know, Derek's last name is Derek Bright. It's not Derek the Bright um, because, I mean, we all know that that's not true. Um, but, but I mean, he, he, he just always has assumed that it was, it was Jesus's last name. And so, I mean, he's returned now uh, with a look of pure confusion on his face. But... I'm still going to ask him, Derek, what does it mean that the Lord Jesus, as the Christ, was filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure? Because I think that's a question that I often get. Uh, What does it mean that he was filled with the Holy Ghost, anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure? 
I don't know. Okay, just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> um, we told y'all he wasn't bright or yeah. the bright. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I heard that my whole life. Derek, not so bright. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at the scripture references for the larger catechism, John 3.34 would be one of them. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. Psalm 45.7, thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Um, I think that one thing I would point to in answering that question is, when we think about Christ, Christ, as we've already discussed uh, previously, is one person with two natures. And um, he is the one who has been, you know, we we as Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. But there is something of a measure to it in the sense that we've not yet been freed from sin. Um, we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can... Um, not that we have more or less of the spirit. Okay. I wouldn't want to say that, of course, but our communion with the spirit can be stronger or weaker. Um, and with Christ, he had no filter, if you will, of sin um, to break his communion uh, with the Holy Spirit. And uh, because he is God, he is um, co-eternal, co you know, all those things. Um, he is one who has the Holy Spirit far beyond um, one of us, far beyond even um, Moses and um, any other mediator or that has come before, right? So um, if you think about, um, okay, did, did Moses do work, good works and miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit? Sure. Um, were there other mediators and, and covenant uh, intermediators that, um, that had the Holy Spirit. And yes, all those things are true, but it was a mere sampling, if you will, compared to how Christ has the spirit above measure. Um, I may not be answering your question the way you anticipated, Matt, but. No, man, you're doing a great job. Loving it. Um. I also think that this gives an account too for why Jesus could. Um, I, I think you know you look at some of the knowledge even that he had. Um, you know, this is a divine knowledge. Um, I, I just I, I don't want to go too far into that. Maybe, but Nick, I feel like you're about to jump in. Nick's ready. So whenever the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, whenever the catechism then puts it into the context of the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, these are the three offices that do receive anointing in general, and that's symbolic of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it is particular, or maybe we would even say peculiar, equipping to those relative offices. And I think there's a text of Scripture that gives us some understanding uh, to the measure of the Holy Spirit being given. I think that's also the relation of it. So the Holy Spirit for the sake of ruling, according to the King, uh, the Holy Spirit according to the promulgation of the Word or the revelation of God, the prophet, 
um, the Holy Spirit according to the labor or the intercession of priests um, in the measure. However, all of those things are not in the fullness of that gifting or that equipping uh, in each individual one, but rather uh, according to the stated task. And so, again, that scripture, Numbers 11, um, we have in verse 17, and I will come down and talk with you there. The Lord speaking to Moses as he's complained about the complaining people. Um, you know, he says to God under the burden of the people, he says, Lord, um, why have you given me these people? Have I bore them in my womb? Uh, Lord, if you love me, won't you just kill me? And what does God say? He says, no, I'm going to make you a Presbyterian. Um, but the broader thing is, he says, I'll come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit, okay, some of the spirit that is on you, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And so there is this equipping to bear up the burden. And these are unique burdens. Again, prophet, priest, and king, they have unique burdens in the midst of the people of God. Um, those uh, three different offices are not one office in, in the whole of the canon of the Old Testament. They only become uh, located in one person in Jesus Christ. And so I think this, this idea of, of, of beyond measure or beyond his peers has to do with the locality of three offices in one man in Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Christ to bear up all of the needs of the people, uh, the rule of the people, the intercession of the people, the direction and education and leading and edification of the people. And that's all in Christ. And that's such a unique thing in him. No man can be said to have that measure uh, in a like capacity. Even Moses couldn't say that sort of thing. He doesn't function as prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, that's 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 real good, Nick. Um, let me give a little um, side note here, not, not to be pedantic because I hate being pedantic, but I do know we have young listeners. And so it's I assume it's worth saying that office, when we're talking about office, we're thinking of that in the theological sense. Um, the average listener, when they hear the word office, they think, oh, a place where somebody works, where they have a desk and a computer, like they have an office. No, we, we, we mean it in the, the more theological sense where office means something like a role or a capacity. So when you think of the office of the president of the United States, that doesn't mean when the, the, the Oval Office, his workspace where he has paperwork and pens and such, but no, his the capacity or the role in which he's serving or he's executing uh, duties the office that Christ Jesus is fulfilling, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. That's what we're getting at here. Um, and that's what the divines are getting at here, of course. And then it's the scripture, too, when it makes use of that language. You know, and, and, and to our listeners, whenever we talk about offices, you may be, especially at this time of year, having your ears keyed up to the language of office or holding office. Uh, we've got elected officials that hold office, and the people who have the authority to place them into those calls or those roles they are truly calls, let me say that, mm -hmm. um, at least in our electoral system, is held in the hands of the populace. Uh, not to get into a discussion over the, the popular vote versus the electoral college, but nonetheless, the authority is in, in the hands of the people. That's different than in a monarchical uh, economy where, where you have this uh, appointment by a king. Um, there is an evidence of that even in our own system with presidential appointments, but, but nonetheless, who is it that holds the authority to place a person in office, biblically speaking, uh, when it comes to the offices of prophet, priest, and king? That's only God. Uh, this is saying he's a man about God's business, a man carrying out the authority of God himself, um, a man under God, uniquely uh, equipped for the purposes of God uh, personally, 
uh, to the task that he would have him carry out. And, and that's where later in the catechism answer, uh, to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king in the estate of both his humiliation and exaltation. His humiliation and exaltation, giving a, a full picture of his ministry. And so I want to kick that to Sean. We touch on humiliation and exaltation. Yeah. Uh, hey, before sorry. that happens, can I say something? By all means. No. Um, <laughs> what is your... I, it's a question. What is your favorite episode of The Office? Mm, All right. So I'm um, sad that Spin's not here because he goes bonkers over this show. He yeah. loves it. So I, I think my favorite episode is probably whenever Anakin races the pod, you know, the, the pod racers. Episode wow. one. Oh, oh, when, when Anakin races the podcasters. Yeah, that's, that is a yeah, great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, couldn't believe it. I mean, he ran Todd Pruitt's slap off the road there on, on, uh, Oh, what's the name of that planet? Uh, Virginia, right? Um, That's right. Well, you know, old Cargo Shorts had it coming. <laughs> Not only are you wrong about your favorite Office episode, but you're wrong about the favorite Star Wars too, Nick. Episode one's terrible. <laughs> okay. Um, Listen, there, there's no nothing more adorable, uh, you know, than Jar Jar Binks. Um, I love whenever he speaks at GA. Uh, his uh, his role with the mic is always so good. He carries the room, um, especially whenever he nominated uh, Fred Greco. It was wonderful. Uh, as he ascended to Chancellor of the PCA. Episode one was is that that's the one with um, with Darth Gandalf. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Um, so <laughs> that went way way farther off the track than I anticipated. I should have known better. So <laughs> in uh, you know, Joel Beakey makes this little quick comment about John three thirty four. He says Christ possesses the Holy Spirit without limit to carry out the divine work of the Father. And that's, of course, something Nick, I think, just hit on. But he also references Isaiah chapter 11. And I, I just wanted to, to put this out there before we moved on. Here's what there's that, you know, I think it's sevenfold, if you will, ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. Um, and you, of course, you could keep going on there. But uh, to just to stop at those um, those first five verses, I think that gives you an idea of uh, really it, it, it places a higher, um, at least in my mind and heart, um, a higher view even of the work that he's fulfilling and doing it with the Holy power of the Holy spirit, um, that sevenfold ministry of the spirit that rests upon Christ without limit. You know, we have wisdom and we have the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of the Lord is on us and, um, have counsel and strength and knowledge and fear of the Lord. Um, but it pales in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. And um, and that's just remarkable. There really could be no other savior. Now, good word, good word, absolutely. A couple couple things, both in relation to, to Nick's question and just 
in relation to the the question more broadly, you know, we've already touched on this, but Christ coming from the Greek Christos, which is comes from the Hebrew Messiah, anointed Mashiach, and uh, that a lot of that, uh, my mind goes to Psalm two, uh, that the Lord's anointed. Um, Psalm two, uh, why do the nations rage? It opens and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, so Yahweh stands behind that, and against his anointed, uh, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. So there's that, that classic messianic psalm, Psalm 2, where the, the kings of the earth and the rulers are conspiring together against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his Messiah, his Christ, namely the Lord Jesus. And so that's where we we start to see some of the Old Testament origins of that title of the anointed one, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, and which of course bring, comes on over into the Greek, Christos, anointed, uh, and then our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one. And we've already spoken at length about anointing in the sense of that the, the Holy Ghost without measure. So good, good discussion and good fodder there. Uh, in regard to Nick's question, as he pointed me towards the humiliation and the exaltation, I'll just touch on this a little bit because I don't want to take away too much, not that I could, but take away too much thunder from future episodes because as students of the larger catechism will know, we have several questions coming up in just a couple of weeks where we're going to get into this more at length. Questions 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50 all help us further expound about this, the estate of Christ's humiliation, of what it was, uh, how Christ humbled himself in life and in death, after death, and then in questions 51 and 52 and 53 and 54, 55, 56, that helps us better understand Christ's exaltation and his resurrection and ascension, uh, making intercession for his people. So we'll get into far more content and far more detail in those questions in the coming weeks. But for the purposes of today's episode and today's question, it's worth just saying that in brief of uh, what is meant by Christ's humiliation. Well, th that he who was rich for our sakes became poor, uh, that he took upon himself the form of a servant uh, in his conception, becoming an embryo in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in his birth in that lowly estate, placed in a feeding trough as he was since the Son of Man had no place whereupon to lay his head. Uh, and the life that he lived, and certainly his death, his burial, uh, up until the point of his resurrection, that's how the larger catechism understands it. Uh, that he, uh, he underwent humility in the sense that he's the Lord of all glory, the second person of the ever-blessed Trinity. He, he became a, a zygote and an embryo, a fetus and a baby, conceiving and growing in Mary's womb up until the point of birth, being born like an ordinary uh, man, an ordinary child. He lived a very humble life, a life of poverty in, in the land of ancient Palestine under the tutelage of his, his you might say, adopted father, earthly father Joseph, learning carpentry and so forth. Uh, he was humbled certainly in his death. Uh, it was That was a humiliating thing, his sham of a trial, his the torment that he endured, dying in agony on Calvary's cross under the scoffing and the mocking and the embarrassment that he did, uh, being buried in that, that burial uh, in that borrowed burial plot, no less, uh, adding to that further humiliation, um, having to having to undergo bodily burial like a common man, like a common sinner would have to undergo, uh, until the point where the Lord exalted him uh, in his resurrection, his glorious resurrection on the third day. 
uh, and then his ascension into heaven 40 days following that, and then even now sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in that place of honor and prominence and esteem, he is exalted in that state at the right hand of God, where he even now makes intercession for his people. And then he'll that, that state of exaltation continues with his return when he comes again to judge the world. The larger catechism will go on to help us uh, understand that even further. So there's just a brief preview of the survey, uh, the way our catechism understands and the way the Reformed tradition has understand, understood, I should say, uh, the various component parts of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. So the, the key in, all, in this, when we're discussing this question in particular, 42, is that in these, uh, in these roles of prophet, priest, and king, which we'll start handling uh, one by one in the next couple of episodes, Lord willing. Uh, but in these roles of our offices of prophet, priest, and king, Jesus the Christ is the anointed one uh, to do these far above uh, those types that would come before him uh, in the Old Testament. You know, that's what's involved in this idea, in this title that Jesus is given as the Christ. This is what uh, Johannes Voss says. It's a little lengthy, so bear with me. But he says, In the Old Testament period, kings and priests were anointed with oil to set them apart for their special offices. He, we should include prophet in that as well. But... Uh, in a lot of ways, but this oil of anointing was a symbol of the Holy Spirit who would enter their hearts and equip them with the ability and wisdom for their duties. Um, and so we see that idea of anointing in the Old Testament, setting a person apart to a special office with the symbol of the Holy Spirit work in their lives. And above all uh, of those types that come before him, uh, Christ is above measure, filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, anointed by the Holy Ghost, so that he might execute those offices in his humiliation, in his life uh, here on earth, from his incarnation to his death, and still to this day now executing those offices in his exaltation, resurrection, ascension, session at the right hand of the Father, now his intercession as he uh, intercedes for us uh, at the Father's right hand. Um, and so when we talk about the Christ, uh, we, have to, we have to understand that this is the Son's title, uh, and that title very much still applies to our Redeemer today, uh, as it did during his uh, humiliation as well, because he is still executing the offices mm -hmm. of prophet, priest, and king. So that's a, a helpful uh, antidote there to, to make sure that we're really emphasizing that this that this work of our Redeemer is still ongoing uh, as we await the consummation of the of the kingdom. Yeah, that, that's right. Talking about the, the humiliation and the exaltation, one of the proof texts that the Catechism supplies is that classic passage from Philippians two that so many folks know so well. The uh, so-called Christ hymn, the Cantus Christi, uh, have this attitude in yourselves, starting at Philippians 2, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then verse 7, it starts to get into the humiliation dimension. And of course, the, the catechism 
gives further elucidation and, and explanation uh, to all these various things. But to put it succinctly, you, you, it, you're hard pressed to do better than these verses from Philippians 2. So verse 70, um, uh, it, it begins in summary talking about that state of humiliation. Uh, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, verse 9, so then it transitions, Paul does, talking about that state of exaltation. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, there's that anointing language, right? Jesus, Christos, Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's a classic uh, proof text, not classic uh, uh, theological landing point, if you will, scriptural landing point that helps us uh, better understand uh, what we're talking about here in this question of his his anointed role, his anointed title, his name, that the name of Jesus, and his offices of prophet, priest, and king, and his state of humiliation and exaltation. And there's other uh, variety of verses that are worth uh, uh, talking about, discussing as well. We may get into that in a minute, but that Philippians 2 passage is certainly uh, among the most prominent. You know, I, I think whenever we encounter the language of Christ in the New Testament, it needs to be said and, and reminded to our listeners that this is the Greek um, translation of the Hebrew Mashiach. It's mm -hmm. the Messiah. And so there is not a little bit of theology about who the Messiah is, what he's going to do. And whenever Westminster here uh, describes it under the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, that's what they're doing there. They're expressing the Bible's own theology of who the Messiah is, what he will do. Um, and the reception of the language of Christ being applied to Jesus needs to be seen and understood as being the title of offense in the midst of the people of Israel in the first century. Um, because if you're going to call him the Christ, you're going to call him the anointed one, the Messiah, um, you have scriptures like Deuteronomy 18.15, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Um, just the title itself presses the authority of who he is on the people of Israel. Um, there's a response. Uh, to call Jesus the Christ demands that we reckon with how we behave toward him, uh, because it establishes there again uh, his role in the midst of the people of God. Uh, it, it, it sets him up not only according to that, you know, the idea of Christ being the Messiah uh, for whom the people of God have to listen to, um, but it sets him up as the king uh, of, of the people of Israel, the one who is in the Davidic line, uh, the one who's great David's greater son. And there again, there's the, the pressure of the authority of Christ and the submission of the people of Israel and the offense that this causes to the Israelites. It, it upsets, it upends their world. It turns all their authority structures on their heads. Um, is it the Romans to whom they will obey? Is it the teachers of the Israelites, the scribes to whom they will obey? Is it the priest uh, and the authority that they bear up in the midst of the people that they'll obey? And, and Jesus standing, being called the Christ, is simply to say, no, it's him. It's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the one in flesh there living among the people of Israel. And so it's a right thing to understand that the title of Christ, more than being a last name or something that's a throwaway thing, um, it, it, it confronts 
and it demands a place to be taken and a stance to be taken regarding who Jesus is in the lives of people. Matt, I feel like you should sing to close us out. (laughs) What you want me to sing? Uh, Whatever you were singing earlier, that fundamentalist song that I've never heard before. (laughs) What a powerful name it is. That's a new one. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our King. That's 100% making it into this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, thank you for joining us here on Larger for Life. It's been a blast to take up question and answers 41 and 42 of the larger catechism that regard the name and the title of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do hope that you've been encouraged, also that you've uh, been given a little bit more to think about in the week ahead, and as you speak about Jesus and use his title as the Christ. We do hope that next time you'll join us as we take up question 43, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Until then, this has been Larger for Life. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.